doctors typically go into the field to cure and to keep their patients alive. But today's guest is an expert in allowing his patients to die with dignity and with peace. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, and I welcome you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Today's guest is Dr. Sebastian Sepulveda. Dr. Sepulveda is a critical care specialist, and he has been in practice for a bit over 20 years. He is also the author of a book entitled At Death's Door, uh, which is also uh, potentially slated to be a television series as well. Dr. Sepulveda, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Sepulveda, one of your concerns is that there are so many common misconceptions about end-of-life care. What are some of the more common misconceptions that you run into? Believe it or not, that question is a, a bit complicated, and I'm going to explain why. Okay. Um, for instance, this morning I was talking to a patient who clearly expressed the fact that if his heart was to stop, which is actually death, and very different from many other acute ailments like a heart attack, he would love to just be left in peace. Um, as it turns out, somebody else was in the room who really wanted to keep him around for a long time, so she brought up a number of things that make the question particularly complicated because people don't look at end of life or death as a one event, but normally um, more of a package which comes with other diseases which are reversible. So people mix the reversibility of acute illness with the actual process of dying. How did that conversation resolve or is it yet to be resolved? I couldn't really resolve it because it, it just kept on getting more complicated. <laughs> so what I normally do is I talk to the patients themselves. Um, mostly what works very well is on isolation, so I can get to hear what they have to say. As by law, I'm I am bounded by what the patient wants. I need to hear what they have to say. So I, that's when I come in, step in, and I explain them what I really mean. Um, and normally we have people with a number of issues in the hospital, chronic diseases, some of them many, very advanced, and some of them for which we really are at the end of the line in terms of being able to treat them. So the question goes as, what would you like to do the day your heart stops and you actually basically pass? If we are around and this happens in the hospital, we do have the chance to run to the bedside and try to bring you back. But at the moment, you are technically dead. So with the patient understanding that part, they, they express their wishes. Um, and as I said, when there are other people around, they tend to get a little bit more confused with other subjects, which is not this specific um part of the conversation. I see. So, for example, a uh, perhaps complicating or confusing question might be, 
um, my loved one's heart, if my loved one's heart died, can't you do this, can't you do that, what about this? Right. Would you treat him for a heart attack? The answer is absolutely. But a heart attack is completely different from a cardiac arrest, which is the fact that the heart goes stand still, doesn't beat, and you are technically dead. I see. Now, what is the difference, which I know you talk about in uh, at Death Store, what is the difference between a DNR order and a DNA order, DNI order? Yeah, that's another a bit complicated, but I'm going to try to be simple. The DNR means do not resuscitate, and it's exactly what I said before. If somebody's heart stop, that person is technically dead, and so the conversation goes to, would you want us to come over here and give you electric shocks, do CPR, and try to bring you back? And so the patient will say yes or net or no, and that will be the um, DNR part. Now, the DNI, which stands for do not intubate, in simple language means do not connect me to breathing machines to keep me alive. So we got to discuss those separate because, for instance, the people with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, of which we have many patients in the country, they get into pulmonary troubles all the time. And actually, many of them ended up coming to the hospital, go to the ICU, and they get connected to a breathing machine. But we know that three, five, seven days later, they will be probably back to their baseline. So that's one situation. Okay. But the other situation is when your life is ending for respiratory complications otherwise, where hooking you up to a machine to breathe would not really be all of that of a good idea because in many cases it might just prolong the agony of dying. So the DNI refers to the hooking somebody up to a breathing machine, which can be temporary or in some cases can be rather to interrupt a terminal situation. So uh, how many times do you find that family members get caught up in wanting to keep their loved one alive for themselves versus for the loved one's benefit? The answer is just about all the time. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's, um, that's why, um, fortunately, too, by law, we got to obey what the patient wants. And these conversations one-to-one are very, very uh, useful. But just about every time there are relatives around, they, for some emotional, loving reason, they don't want this person to go. We don't want them to go either. They, in simple English, it would be if they left, if, if the heart stops, if, if they happen to die, what to do. And as I said, the, the conversation even today when the patient said, I want to be left in peace. And the proxy jumps in and says, no, I'll bring you back. So this is a very common issue, very, very common. And actually in the state of Massachusetts, the proxies are allowed once the patient is out of the picture uh, because of unconsciousness, which can be death, for them to change the legally stated patient's wishes. Really? Yeah. And that's in, and ma- that's that, in Massachusetts. We, yeah, I had a case like that just over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Somebody was at home, terrible life, says, 
the day my heart stops, I want to go. The family calls the ambulance, and as soon as the patient's heart stops, relatives say, you go and you bring him back. And there's a new lay of the land after the patient is essentially unable to make any further decisions. What do you think about the fact that there exists the option of a family member to change uh, the loved one's wishes? Uh, you said the law. I thought about that the other day. And I, I think that, I like always pros and cons, I do not know who passed that law, but I believe that somebody with good intentions uh, thought it was a good idea when in real life um, sometimes it's misused um, to the advantage of the person who is still alive versus the patient who is actually dead. So I've seen misuses of that law um, repeated times, unfortunately. Which actually makes sense as you think about it. Dr. Sebastian Sepulveda, uh, who is the author of At Death's Door, End-of-Life Stories from the Bedside. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Sepulveda. This is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. Don't go away. But in this situation where, let's say, someone is in the hospital and family and friends differ on how the person should be cared for, family wants the person to be allowed to die, friends and colleagues want the person to at least have a second opinion, what can be done in that kind of situation, if anything? Well, it's, um, I would say it's a frequent situation, um, conflict, which is just about what my book is all about. Uh, I've lived through them many times, and for, fortunately, the, the law, the way it is, uh, the patients wishes take precedence, and we try to state that to the relatives and friends. Uh, friends have no say on medical decisions. Only the proxy, which is a designated person by the patient, is the one that can change the actual patient's wishes once they are unable to do so, which means they are in cardiac arrest or they are in coma. Um, there is always room for conflicts and there is always room for resolution and requires, I would say, experience requires a real interest in solving the problem because it gets complicated. Um, it requires very clear communications to everybody. Uh, so I've had many family meetings where friends and relatives are present. And the first thing we, we can do to clarify matters is state for the group how bad things are, number one. 
Uh, number two, what real possibilities are like a cardiac arrest or the when it's not about death itself, uh, it is how the treatment options have been exhausted and we let them know if locally, uh, so we have an option to send them somewhere else to pursue at a theoretical level of care. Um, and in other cases, it's just the fact that there is no more treatment period, no matter where you go. Okay. Um, so we open the options to a humane and more loving a less painful end of life process where the status of what we call care and comfort is utilized which means we stop the medical fight we stop the injections we stop the lab work blood pressure taking cardiac monitoring extra medications consultations doctors everything that makes matters complicated and we focus primarily on the patient being absolutely comfortable, enjoy whatever life they might have um, without further pain being inflicted as the benefits of any approach would really be negligible and many times um, diminishing return every time you attempt something else um, and to no avail. Mm-hmm. So we try to focus on just about that algorithm, but there is a lot of reality and real time and real situations to it, which call for variability and adapting to the real situation. You uh, tell the the story of Gertrude, um, who you descri- described as a sweet, stoic Germany German woman, and there were some unexpected complications with Gertrude. Can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, what I can tell you is that the cases in the book, um, the, the way it was written to protect the patient of course. Um, was um, done in a way that extracted the medical issues and ethical issues from the case and built it into a story. So in her particular case, the clear thing about her was the fact that she knew exactly what she wanted. Um, so when things got complicated, she was able still to um, keep her cool and say what she wanted to. We were able to respect that. And fortunately, that was, at the end of the day, a very straightforward case, which is pretty unique because many times that's not what happens in America. I see. You you also talk about uh, a case of dealing with a patient who um, had dementia but who appeared normal. That would seem to be a very complicated factor. Very complicated and very common. Um, unfortunately, when we talk about dementia, which is in medicine something that we really, really uh, would love to measure, diagnose and measure. It's unfortunately very difficult subject. And the reason why it is, is because by the time the diagnosis becomes established, everybody knows it. It's very obvious. But dementia is a gradual process. So 
we have had in our clinical experience people who had a conversation with some other doctor, some other nurse, uh, with me, and just for us to find out after that conversation, the fact that these people have been already diagnosed with early dementia. Some of them might have been on some form of treatment to delay that, but when you communicate with them, they seem quite normal. And because of the fact that when we see patients, not everybody's in their best shape. People are affected by diseases with some mild degree of confusion, or the disease itself made them behave different from their usual state. And as this is not an intellectual test, and we gotta trust our patients in what they tell us and assign a level of credibility to that, we uh, really favor, I would say, a bit the, what the patients tell us. So we tend to trust them, and though we are judging for the possibility that we might be dealing with dementia, the reality is that it can be quite difficult, even for a seasoned clinician um, under regular medical circumstances, to realize that somebody uh, could be significantly demented and just not notice. And I think that happens on a daily basis in this country probably millions of times. Millions of times on a daily basis. Yep. That's pretty extraordinary. Although it sounds like what you're saying is it's pretty common. It's pretty common, yeah. When the patient is unclear about understanding the decisions available to him or her, and let's say there's a family member who, for whatever reason, perhaps a a mental illness, uh, perhaps a physical illness, is also not able to really understand where does that leave you as the physician? Well, our default position is we got to treat everybody for everything, whether um, medically, ethically, uh, is the right thing to do or not. Huh. Um, we have a we have actually have a case that I, I had to discuss with one of the cardiologists who told me you should put this in your book. He said last night a patient came in from a nursing home who was curled into a sea from prior dementia and stroke and issues for many years, probably 10. Somebody said the patient has chest pain, rushed to the hospital. Somebody gets an EKG. The EKG is abnormal, and he's got enough abnormalities to trigger the acute cardiology team in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday, to rush to the hospital and address that patient's coronary artery status see if they have a heart attack, see if they can open anything. As you can see, as a default, um, it's pretty aggressive. Right. Um, and the reason is when somebody is under very poor circumstances overall to start with, and when even patients who have been bright in their lives become old enough and have diseases like a stroke, um, and they are looking at end of life, in terms of just waiting for them to pass peacefully. And the end of life, which can go on for a long time in the case of the nursing homes, gets interrupted by a process like this. It seems just not the right thing to do. 
<laughs> it looks like we could be a bit more humane. But going back to your question, we are legally defaulted to go all the way, like if the person was in the best of health and the best of circumstances, uh, and perform all the procedures, you know, our standards of care call for, regardless of the circumstances. I can certainly see that. So if the patient is not able to make a decision and there's no competent family member to make a decision, you've got to treat the patient as though they're essentially brand new and throw everything at them. Correct. Hmm. Which speaks to how important it is, I would say no matter what your age, to really have your wishes defined and and written so that people know what they are. I think that is extremely important. Actually, one of the things we did and, and we, we just finally finished is a documentary um, trying to educate people on end of life where we have nine physicians, three doctors, three nurses, a priest, and a lawyer, um, which I wish people got to see because we, all of us, under the most, I would say, humane experience and modest approach to end of life, try to communicate to people that the process can be extremely painful and prolonged. For instance, somebody has a cardiac arrest, 90% chance of remaining dead, no matter what anybody does anywhere in the world, and that would include cardiac resuscitations, admissions to the ICU, nursing home stay, readmissions for infections, another cardiac arrest, you name it. So no matter what people do, you can go on for a whole year, oh. and then the people die. And So it can be very, very painful, but patients don't know that. Families don't know that. They think it's like the movies. Your heart stops, you get back, and you just go on, go on your merry way. It's not like that. It's actually a horrible thing. And for some reason, it's a well-kept secret. So we try to educate people on that so they understand that we're not doing this because we want to um, take a shortcut. We are trying to prevent people from suffering and really having very painful situations for which we know from experience that most likely will lead to death no matter what anybody does anywhere in the, in the world. Dr. Sepulveda, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will have another couple of minutes to chat about a very important issue. Folks, you're listening to Mind Talk. My name is Pamela Brewer, having a conversation with Dr. Sebastian Sepulveda, who is the author of at Death's Door, end-of-life stories from the bedside. We'll be back in just a moment.
Dr. Sepulveda, I, I was surprised to learn that with hospice care, which is the care, as I understand it, available when the goal is comfort. Um, that is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And and I, I was surprised to learn that in addition to a team focusing on pain and symptom control, that they might also be useful in helping the family to deal with things like closing out bank accounts or uh, providing respite care for caregivers. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. The, what that is, well, there are two things. One is palliative care, which is um, rather a reaction society a reaction to a painful death. Um, I say that because hospice, though it exists, it can be quite helpful and do a number of things for patients and the family at home, and there are many testimonies to that. Um, the, it tends to be underutilized and become a last resort. For instance, many, many patients in this country go into hospice 48 hours before they pass, which give time to do not much at all. Right. Um, so palliative care was created, uh, which is a, the members, are essentially the same members of the hospice team, that now at a very early level, sometimes months before the actual patient demise, come in and help patients and families to understand that end of life, is actually a natural thing, can be made into a natural process that um, not every illness deserves a brutal fight to the end, mm. um, that there are options that can be more humane and that it's possible to make the process less painful and sometimes, believe it or not, longer because the patients who subject themselves to heavy therapies and they're dying at a higher rate. So it can be more more comfortable. And then there is a transition from palliative care to a hospice I see. where they can be quite helpful. They come to the house as needed sometimes every day. They can help again with through social workers, especially with those complicated matters that come along with those last days, um, they can come to the house and help the families uh, so they can do other things that they need to do at the time. Um, they can help with the social or legal side of getting to the end of life. And the best way to do it, though, is for the people who are somehow looking at the end of life, um, realize that there are resources through the hospital especially that can lead them uh, to a great deal of help. Uh, so the whole process, uh, as I said, I put it in simple terms to me, just plain English, becomes less painful from the horrible experience that normally is. Dr. 
Sebastian Sepulveda, author of At Death's Door, End of Life Stories from the Bedside. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and explaining these issues in a way that we can understand. Thank you. Thank you very much. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is produced daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications and is available to you on demand by going to MYND. T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And when you go to the Mind Talk homepage, not only can you listen to today's programming, you can sign up for program guides, free gifts. There's a lot of stuff to look at and engage with at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. If you'd like to be in touch with me directly, that email is Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable then it's unacceptable. You take care.